The title of our sermon this morning is Away from the Presence of the Lord. And you can begin looking for Jonah. And our key words for our worshipers in training are see, fear, and pagan. Now in the 700s B.C., Around the time of Jeroboam II, who was one of Israel's most powerful and most influential and prosperous kings, there was a prophet of God whose name was Jonah. He was the son of Amittai. Now, during Jeroboam's reign, Jonah prophesied prosperity for Israel, and he loved Israel. He was from a small town called gath Hepher. It was near a small and uh, other insignificant town that you're familiar with called Nazareth. And this was all in the northern kingdom of Israel. Now Jonah's name means dove. And that sounds good, but in Hebrew, the prophet Hosea says that the dove is a sign given to Israel for being silly and senseless. And given that description, Jonah lives a life that is true to his name. Now generally, when we think of the prophets of God, we think of men who are models of obedience and righteousness to the Lord. And that's what makes Jonah so different from the rest of the prophets. And we know from what God tells us in his word that Jonah was indeed a faithful man of God. But he was also a very grumpy man. A somewhat obstinate man. A man who wasn't afraid to express in words his displeasure when he didn't get his way. And whether we want to admit it or not, there's something about Jonah that is endearing to a lot of us because he is quite unlike the other prophets. In fact, we might say he's a lot more like us. Now, one of... The experiences I've had as a pastor over the last eight years or so now has been that people have certain assumptions as to who I am or what they can expect me to be. Usually, conversations with people I've never met before go fine until I'm asked what I do for a living. And then it gets awkward, so I've tried to have fun with it, to use it as an opportunity to talk to people about the gospel. But there seems to be this very ill-conceived notion that there are bad people, that there are good people, and that there are pastors and missionaries. And in this case, we can say prophets as well. It's a strange idea that people have that, that there's this category of people who are really close to being sinless, if not pretty much sinless altogether. Now, most of you have known me, and you have experienced me long enough to know that's not true about me. And if you don't believe that, I'm sure we, I don't know how we ended up on two different planets, but you can meet with my wife afterwards and find out. But I think people have this misconception about people in general because we don't quite understand what sin is. What it is and how it plays itself out in our day-to-day lives. When we understand sin, we really understand how it's worked itself out it, amongst mankind and we recognize that there really is no distinction between bad people and good people and pastors and missionaries. We're actually all in the very same category. 
all of us are sinners and all of us are in need of salvation and freedom from the bondage of that sin that brings death as its promise. And this is what I mean about Jonah. We have an assumption in our mind when we think of a prophet, what he should look like. But then something happens and we think, wow, they really are like me. And I assure you, if you spend a lot of time with me, you'll be convinced that I'm far worse than you. I'm in daily need of Christ. I need the reminder daily that the penalty for my sins has been paid in Jesus. That's what Jonah needed to know. Now, probably all of us are at least familiar at some level with the small part of the life and ministry of Jonah. He was swallowed by a great fish because he was running away from the command of God. And that event is wonderful. It is miraculous. It has a lot to teach us. But you know, the book of Jonah is filled with a lot of other wonderful, fascinating truths concerning God's working in his world that he uses to bring about his ends. See, God has a wonderful concern for people who are far off. He's willing to use some very unlikely means to bring those who are far off near to him. And he has a love and a compassion for all kinds of people. And additionally, from Jonah's life, we will see someone who was a preacher. We see a man who feared the Lord, a prophet And a person who was called by God, who received direct revelation from God, and yet he falls into terrible sin and disobedience. And so we see there's no special class of God's people. We're all in the same boat, and we're all having the same problem with a need to be reconciled to God. So we're going to start in Jonah chapter 1 and verse 1, and over the next few weeks we're going to work through the book of Jonah. Now, Jonah is one of the 12 minor prophets in the Bible, and the minor prophets aren't called minor prophets because they're less important than the major prophets. They're just shorter books. They take up less space in the Bible. But they are very packed with important truth. Now, if you're having trouble finding Jonah, feel free to look in your table of context. It is a small book. It's only a few pages, but he's right between Obadiah and Micah. We're going to look at verses 1 through 16 this morning in chapter 1 of Jonah, and we're going to look at it under four headings. And the first is this, man's tendency is to run and hide from God when we don't like what he has commanded. Let's read beginning in verse 1. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish away from the presence of the Lord." Now, Nineveh is in the modern-day city of Mosul, Iraq. Many of the walls and the ruins of Nineveh still stand today, and the city of Mosul has been built up all around it. 
I was able to see the walls of Nineveh back in 2004. And their size is still very impressive. They enclose about 1,800 acres of land, and the walls themselves stretch for about eight total miles. Now, Nineveh was one of the oldest and greatest cities of all of Mesopotamia. In Jonah's day, it was the capital city of Assyria. Now, if you know anything about Assyria, you know that up until this point, it was the largest and most violent and most oppressive power that had existed in all the history of the world. They were imperialistic to the core, and they were eating up all of the countries around them one by one. So what did that mean for Israel? Well, Israel knew that at some point they were going to be next, and they had no force against Assyria. People were wiped out through genocide, and so Israel had no illusions that they wouldn't be next on the chopping block. So this is the context in which God calls on his prophet to go to this great city of Nineveh, to cry out against it. In other words, he was to pronounce judgment against them for their great wickedness. They were so violent. They were so destructive. God wasn't going to continue putting up with their evil. It was a pagan city. They were seeking to overtake the world. But as with all of God's creation, they were still under God's reign. They were still accountable to him. And they had reached the end of the road as far as he was concerned. And for a prophet of God, this should have pretty much been an open and closed case, right? God calls on Jonah. He tells him to go to Nineveh to to speak the words that God would give him. And then it's all over, right? That's not what happens. Why? Because Jonah is a lot like all of us. He begins to not just think about what God is asking him to do, but even more telling of Jonah's heart is that he's thinking about why God is asking him to do it. Now, as an Israelite, there is no doubt whatsoever that Jonah hated the Assyrians. And of any place in Assyria to go, the absolute last place that he would want to go is to the capital city, Nineveh. Now, we may initially have a hard time relating to this, but I want you to imagine if you were asked right now to go to the middle of Syria and Iraq and tell a group of radical Islamists that they should, re- that they should repent and turn to Christ or they will be destroyed by the judgment of God. I don't know that you get a lot of warm and fuzzy feelings when you think about that. What do you think... If you were to see such a thing happened in those who are part of a group like ISIS, they came to faith in Christ. Do we get excited about that thought? I'm guessing we're much more inclined to want them to be absolutely destroyed. Now, I want to say it's not wrong that we would pray that God would preserve his people, that God would even destroy his enemies. But we can't escape the reality that God does not delight in the destruction of the wicked, and nor shall we. When I was in middle school, those wonderful two years of my life, there was a group of kids that didn't like me very much. 
They enjoyed making fun of me. They pushed me around when they had opportunity. They were bullies, and I was in choir and jazz band and on the C team in basketball. I remember thinking every time I saw those guys that I just wish that they would mess with the wrong crew and that they would get what I thought that they deserved. And I wanted them to not only get what I got from them, but I wanted for them to get far worse. Maybe then they'd see what it's like, and maybe then they'd start to back off. And at that time, I didn't think about the reality of the lives they lived and the homes they came from. All I knew was I wanted them out of my life, and I wanted them to get roughed up along the way. Maybe you felt that way. Maybe you've, you've uh, had all sorts of attitudes toward people or a group of people because of some experience you've had with them where you felt like things happened unjustly or you knew something about them that kept you far from them. And that's how Jonah felt. That's what he wanted. He wanted destruction. He wanted judgment for the Assyrians, for the Ninevites. And so maybe it seems strange at first that Jonah wouldn't want to go to the Ninevites and tell them that God was going to destroy them in judgment. Why wouldn't he want to do that? He was filled with hatred for these people. Wouldn't telling them that God was going to judge them be something he would desire? Wouldn't he have great joy in telling them they were going to be destroyed? Well, of course he would. But he knew something about God that kept him from wanting to obey. Now think about this. If God wants to destroy a nation, he doesn't need a prophet to go and tell them. He just does it. He puts it in the hearts of a rival nation to go and attack them, and they are led along by his power and his strength, and they're taken out. He doesn't need a prophet to go and announce the coming judgment. So what was this all about? Well, Jonah knew that this was actually a warning. And the warning was a call to repentance. So if God wants to destroy Nineveh, he doesn't need a preacher. Ah, but if he wants to save Nineveh, he does. You see, Jonah was no dummy. He knew what was coming And he wanted none of it. Plainly stated, Jonah was a terrible racist. He hated the Ninevites because they were Ninevites. And God said, go to that great city and cry out against it. But Jonah knew that crying out against Nineveh was a purposeful move by God for Nineveh. Paul tells us in Romans chapter 2, God will give to each person according to what he has done to those who by persistence in doing good seek glory, honor, and immortality he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and who reject the truth and follow evil, there will be wrath and anger. You know, Jonah was well aware of the evil in Nineveh. And so his desire was that God would follow through with the wrath and anger that Paul speaks of. And he saw what was coming. God wanted to change their hearts, to seek after his glory and to honor him instead of themselves. So God is for the Ninevites and Jonah is not. 
So what does he do? He flees. He runs away. He goes down to Joppa to get on a ship to head to Tarshish. Where is Tarshish? It's in the opposite direction of Nineveh. Nineveh was to the northeast. Jonah was headed to the southwest. Now it's important as we think about this that we not get too full of ourselves and assume we would have done any better. We do this all the time. There are times in our lives when we're confronted with circumstances where the only option we give to ourselves is to sin. And so our tendency is to try and hide from God when we don't like what he has commanded, when we feel like we have a better idea of what to do and where to go. I've had a lot of people tell me before, I know this is sinful, but I'm going to do it anyway. In one way or another, they're saying, me doing what God wants me to do is not an option I'm entertaining right now. And when you're on the outside looking in on that, you say, that is completely illogical. But when you're in the middle of all of it, we decide to listen to the world, we listen to our flesh, we listen to the devil, instead of walking in the spirit, we give in to our natural tendency to do what all of those voices say to us instead of hearing the voice of our master. That's nothing new, is it? Remember what Adam and Eve did in the garden after they disobeyed God? Two things. They covered themselves with fig leaves to hide their nakedness because all of a sudden they experienced shame and then they ran and they tried to hide. Think of the insanity. They had unbroken, loving union and communion with God. And then all of a sudden they sinned and they were ashamed And they ran and tried to hide. That's our inclination, isn't it? So often people will walk in sin and they begin to very rapidly pull themselves away from God and his people. They pull themselves away from Christian friends. They pull themselves away from the church. They begin to surround themselves with other voices who will encourage them to continue in the way of sin instead of the way of righteousness and holiness. Show me a person who was once fully committed to their church and gospel community, who is now distant from the church and disengaged from gospel community, and I will show you a person who's living in persistent, unrepentant sin. The two go hand in hand. And when we are knowingly engaged in sin, when we are willfully disobeying God, we don't want to be around God's people. Their lives are an indictment to us. We see them fighting sin. We see them seeking to walk in obedience. We don't want to hear the preaching of God's word either. Because instead of it falling on us with joy and delight, it falls on us like a thousand pounds of bricks and we feel crushed and it it pierces our conscience. And we don't want to do anything about it when it does. So we just continue to walk in disobedience to God's word. We continue to pull away from the Lord and his people because we don't want to feel the sting of our sin. We don't want to experience the trauma of having to admit that we are out of alignment with God and his church. So we hold everyone else at an arm's distance so they can't get it close enough to evaluate our lives and to hold us accountable 
and to love us into repentance. But one of the silliest things that we can do is what we seek to do with God. We think that we can hold him at an arm's length and keep ourselves away from his watchful eye. That's not possible, is it? We're going to hide from an all-knowing, omnipresent God? You know, God knows more about you than you know about yourself. He knows the thoughts of your mind and the intentions of your heart. He knows what you will do tomorrow before you do. And so you may be able to fool others. You may be able to put on a show and hide from your sin for a while, but you cannot hide from God. The author of Jonah writes two different times in verse 3 that Jonah is seeking to flee from the presence of the Lord. What a preposterous endeavor. What a fruitless venture he is seeking. Psalm 139, we're reminded of this reality. Where shall I go from your spirit? Where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed and shul, you are there. In life and in death, God is there. We can never escape the eye of our maker. So it's a fool's errand we are running if we are running away from God. There's nowhere to hide. And in Jonah's life, God proves this reality. So secondly, we see in these verses here, in our disobedience, God will put us in desperate situations. Look at verses 4 through 6. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God, and they hurled the cargo cargo that was on the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give give a thought to us that we may not perish. Now, because of Jonah's actions, God sends a massive storm upon the sea. Literally, it says he hurled a storm upon the sea, meaning he sent a violent force of of treacherous winds. It was so strong, the text says that the ship was like to be broken. The ship was about to be smashed to pieces because the wind and the waves were so strong against it. One commentator says, something of Jehovah's anger is revealed here, something of his terrible strength. The wind and the waves are subject to God's great power and decree, and he even uses them to bring about his purposes. I want you to notice the sailors in verse 5. They were afraid. They saw the waves crashing in on them. They were so afraid that they began to take their cargo and to throw it overboard to save themselves from destruction. And why were they in this condition? Why did they find themselves in this place? All of it came upon them because of Jonah's disobedience. You know, so often we think that our sin is just about us. But our sin will always have an effect far greater than just ourselves. 
So often we think our sin is in secret or we have things in our lives we do knowingly that they are sinful and we think it's my decision, it's my life, it's not going to have anything to do with anyone else when in fact sin always affects others. We are never alone in the effects of our sin. Never. Not once. And as was the case with Jonah, he was the one running from God. But it came at a great expense to the sailors. These men made their living on the sea. Likely the cargo on their ship was goods being delivered from coast to coast. But they were left no option but to throw it off. Let the ship not sink. And likewise, there were probably other ships on the water as well. They all lost out on that day. And it came as a result of one man's sin. Brothers and sisters, do you suppose that time you spend alone in front of your computer screen looking and sending things you shouldn't doesn't harm anyone else? Do you think cheating on taxes or fudging on timesheets or expense reports is not going to affect someone else? Do you assume the decisions you make about your life that are contrary to God's will are harmless as they concern others? It is a selfish madness to think that we are alone in our sin and that our decisions are just ours and that we don't drag other people into it with us. This is the Apostle Paul's warning in 1 Corinthians 5 where he writes, Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Sin is cancer. And if cancer is allowed to go on without being rooted out forcefully from the body, it will take over us and it will destroy us. So what happens when I decide, well, the cancer is just on my appendix and I don't need my appendix and I feel fine, so I'm not going to do anything about it. In time, this insignificant spot on this insignificant part of my body begins to grow and it will spread and eventually I will die. That's why the church is commanded time and time again all throughout the Bible to take heed lest we be affected and infected with unrepentant sin. Now hear me on this. We're all going to sin each and every day. We cannot escape that reality in this life as we live in the flesh. In fact, even our greatest deeds with our greatest intentions are still shrouded in some form of fleshly desire. But the issue in the church is not that sin exists. It's that sin goes unrepented of. Christians should live lives of daily repentance. And when we don't, it infects the whole body. Remember a few weeks ago, we talked about the church as the body of Christ. Sin is destructive as a cancer in that body. And unrepented sin is sin that having been made known to us, we continue to reject the truth of God's word and we walk in our own way. And we see right here from God's response to Jonah that God doesn't take sin lightly. He doesn't take our attempts to run from his will lightly. And in fact, others are brought alongside us whether they want to be or not. Are you engaged in some kind of sin right now that you think is hidden from other people? If so, 
repent. If you're a part of Christ's body, your sin, this very moment, is affecting all of us because it's keeping you from functioning as the part of the body that God wants you to be. Repent and turn from that sin because it's a cancer that needs to be rooted out. You're engaging at it, in it at a great cost, not just to yourself, but to your family and to all of us who sit here together this morning. Now we also see in Jonah that the Lord uses the circumstances of our lives to bring us to repentance. There are many warnings present in this episode here. The pagan sailors didn't know where to turn, did they? They rid their ship of all the cargo, and then they cry out to their own lifeless gods. We see in verse 5, Jonah is fast asleep. How could he sleep? You think of the ship on the waters just being tossed around. It's so violent, it's about to break up. How could he be so unmoved in the midst of such a catastrophic event? Jonah's physical sleep is symbolic of his spiritual sleep. He was no more aroused physically by the storm than than spiritually by the command of God. But all of this was a warning to Jonah. All of this was a call for Jonah to repent, to literally turn around and go back where he came from that he would walk instead in obedience to God. That's what repentance is, turning, making a 180 degree turn from sin and walking in a path of obedience instead. If the Lord is pounding down on your conscience, having sent a mighty tempest your way, the alarm should be going off. Some of you right now, you have, you have some sin in your life that you continually feed and protect and seek to hide. And as I bring it up, as I'm, I'm pressing in on you right now to think about it, to have it in the fronts of your minds, it feels like I'm thrusting arrows into you. You feel broken and you feel bloodied and you feel wounded by them. This is the time for repentance. Toss off all your cargo into the sea. Get rid of everything that keeps you from staying afloat and get rid of all that is in your life that is not pleasing to God. Do whatever it takes to find your way. Back from the treacherous waters to the solid ground that you can walk in obedience. Do whatever it takes to find your way back in favor with God. Whatever must go, it must go. If you hold on to it too tightly, you'll find yourself shipwrecked at sea because you were asleep at the bottom of the ship with nowhere to go but down in death. Do you see the hardness of Jonah's heart? Do you see that same hardness in your own? Well, the sailors did all that they could to preserve their lives, even calling out to their gods, Jonah rested. Jonah was unmoved by the mover of land and sea. The sailors were fearful, but Jonah was indifferent. Verse 6 says, So the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. The pagan captain of the ship showed greater reverence for God than Jonah. 
And notice the captain of the ship echoed the very same word of God from the beginning of this narrative. God told Jonah in verse 2, Arise, go to Nineveh and call out against it. And now the captain says to Jonah, Arise and call out to your God. Must have been startling for Jonah to, to hear the same words that the Lord had spoken to him as captain. And then we see all the sailors come together. And they show us, thirdly, God's power and work is obvious to all men. Look at verse 7. They said to one another, Come, let us cast lots that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, Tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation? Where do you come from? What is your country? And of what people are you? And he said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, What is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. The sailors all got together and they gathered around Jonah and they cast lots to see who was responsible for this great storm, or as they called it, the great evil that had fallen upon them. All throughout the Old Testament and even a few times prior to Pentecost in the New Testament, the practice of casting lots was used in a variety of circumstances to to make decisions when God hadn't given a clear word. Now it seems like lots would be based on random chance, but even pagans believed that the outcome of casting lots was supernaturally controlled. And the Proverbs remind us that the outcome is, in fact, in the hands of the Lord. In this instant, the lot was cast and it fell upon Jonah, confirming God's purpose in sending the great tempest in the first place. Jonah was outed and something had to be done about it. But notice, Jonah's confession in verse 9 is betrayed by his actions. How true is it so often that our actions speak much louder than our confessions? One time... I was flying home after a week-long trip somewhere, um, and I had several delays along the way. And so I was at the ticket counter, and I was ready to unload on the person behind the counter. Even though I knew it wasn't their fault, I was ready to let them hear from me. I, I was less than pleasant. I lacked all grace and all kindness in my responses, But the woman continued to be very helpful and very kind to me. I was angry. And in that moment, in my mind, I was justifying that my anger was fine. And then she asked me, can I have your email address so we can send you an updated itinerary? Ah, my email address. Well, my email address very clearly identifies me as a pastor. So I did the right thing and gave them my wife's email address instead. (laughs) Now, in, in reality, I knew that I had been outed. 
I knew I could either stand there in my shame and continue to feel justified in my sin and just press on, or I knew that I needed to tell her that I was sorry for my attitude and thank her for the great service she provided. That's so frequent in our lives, isn't it? Brothers and sisters, does what we say about what we believe and in whom we believe match the way that we walk in this life? Are our lives consistent with the words of our mouths and the confessions of our hearts? That's the question. Jonah reveals the hypocrisy of our own hearts. Jonah reveals the hypocrisy of his heart to these sailors. And they're very aware that Jonah has aroused the anger of the one true and living God. They've seen it in God's power. Back in verse 5, we're told that the sailors were afraid. And now in verse 10, we see that the, the sailors are exceedingly afraid. They were far more fearful of God than Jonah was. So much so that they asked him, you can, you can almost hear the fear and the anguish in their words, why have you done this? And once again, the folly of Jonah's actions are portrayed in verse 10 when the sailors are made aware that Jonah sought to flee from the presence of the Lord. What a foolish venture. There was no question at this point for any of them as to who was responsible for this storm and to whom they shall fear. In all of their efforts to calm the wrath of God, they couldn't do it. And quickly they realized, and this is the fourth thing, that the children of God cannot flee his presence or reject his discipline. Look at verse 11. Then they said to him, What shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. He said to them, Pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will be quiet down for you. For I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to dry land, but they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life, and lay not on us innocent blood, for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. So what were they all to do? The tempestuous sea was bearing down on them more and more and more, and they needed an escape. The sailors were frightened. No doubt they were, they were a little bit angry at Jonah's words, but at this point they had one objective, figure out what it will take to get God to quiet this storm. And this is the first time Jonah acknowledges his guilt. But notice about how Jonah responds. Would God have relented if Jonah were to cry out in this moment in repentance? Probably. That's not what he does. He never asks God to quiet the storm. He simply tells the sailors, here's how to fix the problem. Throw me overboard. Now, is Jonah sacrificing his life right now for others? Not very likely. Most likely, Jonah knows there is no escaping the hand of God. 
He knows all that he has called Jonah to do. And so Jonah is sort of giving up. He wasn't going to make it if he was thrown to sea. It was the easy way out. It was a win for everyone. I don't have to live and go to Nineveh, and you don't have to endure the storm. That's what that was all about. But even in this, the sailors, the pagan sailors, showed great compassion. The last thing they wanted to do was to throw their traveling companion overboard. So we read in verse 13 that the men sought to row harder to get themselves to the shore. But very clearly, dry land wasn't what God desired for Jonah. He wouldn't be allowed to find another way to run away. There was only one way off this ship, and it was to be tossed into the sea. Now, sometimes we look at our lives and we see God's ways and we think they are hard, and indeed, they may very well be very difficult. There are things that God does in our lives to conform us all the more to the image of Christ that are difficult, especially when he's correcting us in the midst of our sin. But he doesn't throw us overboard in anger. He doesn't throw us overboard in a harsh fit of rage. He does so because he loves us enough to discipline us. The writer of Hebrews reminds us of this. He says, My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have earthly fathers who disciplined us when we, and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the father of spirits and live? For, the dis- for they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Brothers and sisters, if you are a child of God and continue in unrepentant sin, be ready for the Lord's correction in your life. The discipline will be difficult to endure. And it may lead you down many paths of hardship, but rest assured it is for your good. It is far greater to go to heaven having endured tremendous difficulty along the way because the Lord loves you and cares for you than it is to be cast away forever in your disobedience and unrepentant sin. And so if you're a child of God, repentance is the easy way forward. Continued disobedience is the hard way. It's the the way of constant flogging and tempestuous seas in life. Why will you not submit to God? Why would you rather endure his discipline? Be sure of this. It may very well be an indication that you're not walking with God at all. Should you continue in sin and in doing so not be disciplined by the Lord, I pray that you are fearful like the sailors on this ship. They saw the Lord's power in bringing restoration to one of his own. And look what happened to them. 
The sailors were fearful about even throwing Jonah overboard, but they had no option. They couldn't row into land. They couldn't calm the storm on their own, so they prepared to put him in the sea. But first they cried out to God that he not hold them liable for his death. Their sensibilities were far more humane than Jonah's, and their consciences far more concerned about the circumstances. The sailors used the covenant name of God, Jehovah. They pled with him as their only hope in life and death. And then in verse 15, they took up Jonah and cast him forth into the sea, and the sea ceased from her raging. So despite his disobedience and his whining and his grumpy spirit, Jonah still proved an excellent witness for God. We see God sovereignly using Jonah's disobedience to introduce these pagan men to himself. They give us evidence of genuine faith. There's no question as to the truthfulness of Paul's words in 1 Corinthians 1 when he says, God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. What Jonah intended for evil in his fleeing from the presence of the Lord, God intended for good in the lives, in the hearts, and in the salvation of these pagan sailors. It's one of the few instances in the Old Testament where we see the true faith and salvation of those who are not of the people Israel. And here with Jonah, his entire mission, and in all of his encounters, we get a glimpse of God's love for all mankind. He saved the pagan sailors. He sets Jonah on a journey to save the pagan city. And you know, friend, if you're here this morning like these sailors, not knowing and trusting in and loving the one true God of the universe, you too can cry out to him in repentance. You too can call on God to save you from the penalty that is due to you because of your sin. You may have heard it all before. It's likely that you have. But here's the good news that all of us need to be reminded of. While we were enemies of God, he didn't send a tempest upon the sea to rock our world and bring us into conformity to his commands. He sent a loving, merciful Savior who lived a law-fulfilling life and died the death that we were to die. And he rose from the dead that we too might live in union and communion with him forever and ever. God takes sin very seriously. God does not let sin go unpunished, but praise be to God for those of us who are in Christ Jesus the ultimate penalty of our sin has already been paid in Jesus Christ. Will you repent of your sin? If you're a Christian, will you walk in conformity to your God? Would you repent that you not be disciplined by him? For those who are not in Christ, will you turn to Christ and live for him? Of all of God's commands, this is the very first one he calls you to obey. Turn from yourself and be given on to him. It's our natural tendency to run away from what God commands, but there's no hiding from him. There's no way out. And when God wants to get our attention, when he wants to bring us in obedience to his word, 
We will find ourselves in some very difficult circumstances. But rest assured, they're for our good. Our God is a powerful God. Our God is a loving God. Our God is full of mercy and loving kindness. Don't seek to foolishly run away from God. You're going to sin. Don't run from him. Run to him and delight in the gift of Christ who was given for you that when you sin, you can be reminded that you will live. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the reminder this morning of how serious you take the sins of man. For the reminder of how serious you are about restoring your people back to obedience. For the reminder that obedience to you is truly for our good. I pray, God, for all of us that we not be falling in love with the world and the things of the world, but that we would cast all of it aside, that we can live unto you with joy and peace. I pray, God, that you would help us to examine our own lives. Lord, for those who are in unrepentant sin, that it would be bearing on their hearts right now and that they would confess that sin to you and that you would be pleased to assure them in true repentance that you cleanse them from all unrighteousness. And God, for those who are apart from Christ, would you do a great work in their lives like you did for the sailors on the ship that day? that they would see your power and your majesty and your might and your goodness and your kindness and your love and that they would cry out to you in repentance, that they would turn to you in faith and that you would be pleased to give them new life in Jesus Christ. We ask all of this in his holy and precious name. Amen.